Please open your Bibles to John's Gospel. As we continue getting into this Gospel this morning, I want to remind you of the purpose of John's Gospel. He was explicit. Not many of the biblical writers did that for us. He was explicit telling us why he wrote and also why he wrote the specific things that he did. Uh, In the next to the last chapter of the Gospel, uh, he tells us, um, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. They wouldn't fit, basically. can't have a book that contains everything, but these are written. I picked these, he said, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he says he did many other signs, but I picked these signs. John selected from among the signs that Jesus did. He wanted the reader, you and me, to be aware of of these signs. And most folks, as they do their counting, say, well, John included seven signs in his gospel. Uh, And so we're going to look this morning at the first of those signs uh, in our passage. So uh, John chapter 2, the first 11 verses, I'd like to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Would you pray with me now? Father, I pray this morning that our looking at this sign of the Lord Jesus would have the very same effect today as it did 2,000 years ago. That it would manifest the glory of your Son in our seeing. And that we would believe in him as the disciples did that day. By the power of your spirit, through your word, would you accomplish both of these things for your glory? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So Jesus performed a sign. At the end of chapter 1, we saw Jesus displaying some supernatural knowledge that he had about Nathanael. And Nathanael was blown away. He was amazed. 
It's like, how did you know that? And Jesus tells them, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's my paraphrase. More literally in chapter 1, verse 50, it's something like, you will see greater things than these. And turning water into wine is the first of those greater things. It's a sign. Now, a sign is not a naked display of power for power's sake. It is a demonstration of power, but with a purpose. And the purpose is directly linked to the result that we see was achieved by this sign. Look again at verse 11. After the sign, what can be said of it? Well, this first sign of his manifested his glory and the disciples believed as a result of it. So these signs do a couple of things. And the first is they reveal the glory of the Son. Now, John already mentioned that in the first chapter, verse 14. He said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory that could only be of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So signs in John's Gospel show us the glory of the Son. And they do so in such a way that the people who see them are led to the conclusion that he, in fact, is God. Now, we're going to dig into the meaning a little bit of this sign. But in digging into the meaning, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Jesus turning water into wine is an amazing display of supernatural power. Only God could accomplish this. That is what manifests or displays the glory of Jesus. Now, the second effect that verse 11 mentions is that the disciples believed in him. Now, clearly they already knew that he existed. They could see him. He's right there. Clearly they had some level of interest in him because they followed him home that day and they've stayed with him and they're following him now. But they see this sign... And they begin to believe in a, in a trusting way, in a, in a placing their faith in him sense as a result of seeing the sign. And that's important. These signs have meaning and they have significance that can only be seen and fully understood with the eyes of faith. And that's why the disciples see the sign and believe is is that by God's grace they've been given the eyes of faith that's why they see and believe that faith has been given to them because we're going to see many times over in John's gospel that the mere physical act of seeing the miraculous thing unfold is not magic many will see with their eyes these displays of power, and not only will they not believe, will they not place their faith in Christ, will actually see their hearts get harder and harder by seeing these signs. Now, how can we best understand this sign? It's the first one. Possibly not just in order it's first, but possibly it might be primary. 
among the other signs. John wanted us to see it and understand it. That's why it's here. And so for us to get us a good handle on it, I want us to focus on four things about this sign. I want us to focus on the wine, on why he calls his mama woman, focus on the fact that it's a wedding, and focus on these water jars. So what's up with the wine? Why would Jesus' first sign have something to do with wine? Well, practically speaking, that's the circumstance, that's the situation that has presented itself. Uh, This groom at this wedding is about to be terribly embarrassed and shamed because it was his responsibility to make provision for enough food and enough wine for a week-long wedding feast, which was standard for the culture in that day. And so Jesus steps in, saves the day, he keeps the party going. That's what's going on on the surface. But when his mother Mary comes to him and says, they have no wine, it's not a stretch at all to see some much deeper connections here to who Jesus is as the Messiah. They have no wine. Wine in the Bible is very, very often a symbol of of joy, uh, of celebration, of of abundance, right? When times are good, wine abounds. But when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, the Jewish religion has none of these things. There's no joy. There's no celebration. There is no abundance. There is barrenness. Judaism is barren. The monarchy has long since crumbled. The land is occupied again, this time by the Romans. The people are oppressed. The people are depressed. It's a strong parallel at this moment to when the people were previously in exile in a foreign land. Not a time of joy or celebration or abundance. And in those days, back in the exile, God sent his word through his prophets and foretold a coming day. Right? There's no joy now, there's no celebration now, there's no abundance now, but a day is coming when all their fortunes would be reversed. The prophet Amos in, in chapter 9 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. That day, the day that Amos prophesied about, was partially fulfilled at the end of that particular exile. But its ultimate fulfillment begins with the coming of Messiah. The prophet Isaiah also picked up on, on the motif of, of wine being a part of Jesus' coming, being a part of the Messianic age. In Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Messianic age is prophesied to include an abundance of wine. So how fitting that Jesus' first miracle, His first sign, is is the creation of an abundance of wine. More wine than this feast could possibly need. 150 gallons of fine, fine wine. Now, If Jesus is indeed the perfect and sinless Son of God, why is he being so rude to his mama? Verse 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. How rude. Is is there not a father around to grab him by the ear and say, boy, don't talk to your mama that way? It's not necessarily rude. Um, Commentators that I read tend to agree this, this, this is blunt. It's abrupt. But it's not harsh. It's not disrespectful. Now certainly, Jesus could have chosen a more endearing term to refer to Mary. Something with more warmth. But He didn't. And that's, of of course, on purpose. He refers to her as woman to purposely create distance between him and her, between her comment about there not being any wine and his miracle of providing abundant wine. Now why? Why does he create this distance? A couple of things are at play here. One is he's protesting Mary playing the family card. And this is as much for the sake of those hearing around them as it is for Mary. It's as if to say, you might be my mother, but this family tie only goes so far. And we see this again and again throughout the Gospels. Every time that Mary and and even Jesus' brothers appear, Jesus creates distance. There's, there's a time in another gospel when Jesus is ministering to a group of people and his mother and brothers think he's lost it. They think he is not well in the head. That he is working himself nearly to the point of death. And they go to help him. They go to get him and, and take him home for some forced rest, most likely. And so they go to wherever he is, and the people say, Oh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. 
then how does he respond? Who are my mother and my brothers? The ESV that I'm preaching from this morning translates this question, what does this have to do with me? It's, it's a weird little expression in the Greek that's more literally, what to me and to you? Basically, what thing do we have in common here? What about this need that you see concerns me? Um, one of the commentators I read said that on one level, Mary and Jesus had much in common. But at another level, they were worlds apart. He was the eternal Son of God, and she was just another sinful descendant of Adam. Ouch. That's hard to to read. It's hard to hear him call her woman. But what might seem to be cold... What might seem to not be very loving is actually very much a grace that Jesus is extending to Mary and to the others who heard it that day. Jesus may have been Mary's son, but he was also her Lord. And she needed him as her Savior much more than she needed him as her son. The second thing that's at play here, Calvin does a good job of bringing this out. This distance that he creates has to do with his purpose and his mission. See, Jesus needed to distance the miracle he was about to perform from his mother's implied asking him to do it. Because we need to see that Jesus is in complete control of what he's doing. No one else's desires or agenda or manipulation will influence what he does. He's a man on a mission. And this mission has to trump everything else. It has to even trump all of his other relationships, even the relationship with his mama. And it's hard, right? It's hard for us to read that. We, we squirm a bit. Uh, D.A. Carson, I loved how he put this. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she'd also come to rely on him as a family provider. We we don't see mention of Joseph. Presumably, he has died, and, and Jesus, through his resourcefulness, is the man of the house. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. And that helps us understand this comment Jesus makes about his hour not yet coming. Now, in John's gospel, we're going to hear a lot more about his hour, right? His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet. Eventually, chapter 12, we will hear, my hour has come, right? And we'll pay great attention to that moment. Uh, But we're going to see the Jewish leaders try to arrest him and plot and everything. And they are not successful in their initial efforts. And it always says, because his hour had not yet come. Every time his hour is mentioned, it's referring to his death. He understands that his dying will be the pinnacle of his mission. And he knows That event will happen at the precise moment that the Father has planned for him. 
So his hour is his death. So step back and look at this again. Let's reread that verse. They've run out of wine. And Jesus responds, Woman, it's not time for me to die. What is the connection there? They've run out of wine. It's not time for me to die. These things seem completely unrelated in our minds, but not in Jesus' mind. Which leads to our next point. Where are they? What is the setting here? It's a wedding. Now, why would a wedding have Jesus thinking about his death? I think in nearly every wedding that I've officiated... I've made some type of reference to or used Ephesians chapter 5. Right? Paul's letter uh, of sort of general gospel instruction to the church at Ephesus um, has exhortations and instruction to cover just about every aspect of, of life, including marriage. And so he gives some very specific instructions to husbands and to wives. And at the end of that set of instructions about marriage, he has this to say in Ephesians 5.32. This mystery of marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, sometimes preachers go looking for an illustration, and they're thinking, all right, what in the news or what in literature or what in the movies can I pick and, and sort of bend or use or make it work as an illustration? Okay? That's not what Paul is doing here. He's not saying, man, I really want to illustrate the gospel and, and the work of Christ. What can I find that already exists? And sort of, he's not saying, ooh, look, marriage is kind of like what Jesus does. No, what Paul is doing is pointing to the fact that a foundational reason that marriage exists is that we might understand the work of Christ. That we might understand his relationship to the church. Because you see, an early part, earlier part of that instruction in chapter 5, to the husbands, is verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up. And he's at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, thinking about when his hour comes. Because, y'all, he's the groom. And a day is coming when he will give himself up as the price to purchase his bride. So he's there at this wedding, probably off to the side, deep in thought, much like a, a single person might be at a wedding, right? What do single people daydream about at weddings? Their own wedding. I wonder if, I wonder what it would be like. Jesus is likely lost in thought thinking about his wedding and the price he'll have to pay to make it happen. He's the groom. And as such, he's got to provide all the wine. Which brings us around to our final thing to consider about this sign, and that's the water jars. Why did Jesus use these? 
He could have used anything. Presumably, he could have just said, hey, bring me empty wineskins. Bring whatever the wine happened to be in that you ran out of and fill those. Why these six huge stone jars? Jars that already had, John tells us, a specific purpose. They were used for ritual purification. Because you see, the Old Testament law stipulated that certain washings needed to happen in order for people and things to be right, fit for God's presence. But this was just ritual, right? This is not good hygiene that's in view, right? There's no scrubbing involved. There's no 409 or anything like that. This is just getting things wet to check a box and say, all right, now according to the law, they're quote-unquote clean. And it's these jars that Jesus instructs to be filled. It's these jars that he completely transforms the contents of as if to say, here's how you think you've been making yourselves right before God. Here's how you think you've been making yourself fit for God's presence. Well, I'm about to do something entirely new. When my hour comes, I'm going to do something that will actually cleanse you. It will actually remove the stain of your sins. Um, Calvin suggests that the size and the quantity of these jars uh, is, is disproportionate. It's, it's an ostentatious show, right? It's an attempt to say, look how pious we are. We've got six purification jars, and they're so huge. It was well above what the law required. But look at how serious we are about being devout and about being religious. And for that crowd, if that's the case, how shocking it would have been to them for Jesus to come and to use their jars, which would have defiled them for their current purpose, And of course, that's exactly why Messiah had come. To replace the ritual of cleansing and purification with actual cleansing and purification that all our garments might be washed clean in His blood. That's the ultimate bride price that has to be paid for the bridegroom Jesus to make us His bride. That's what was on Jesus' mind that day. Maybe that had something to do with the the terseness of his answer to his mama. He knew there wasn't any wine. And he knew that he would have to provide it in abundance. And that's Jesus' first sign. In it we see his glory revealed. And by God's grace may we come to trust his provision for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that at your leading, Jesus gave us signs. Thank you for this demonstration of power that ultimately shows your glory and that foreshadows the great provision that Jesus would make. 
Not merely in creating wine, but in shedding His blood. Father, I pray that as we see glory revealed, it would create in us, it would prompt in us, it would elicit from us belief and trust. That You would humble us of our need. That You would overwhelm us with the provision that's been made for that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stay.